you know, sometimes when you sit down and you pick up the bulletin, you notice things that you say, boy, I wish we hadn't have said it that way. Uh, one of them is about the Family Summit tonight. Tonight is the Grace Family Summit. This is for all members of Grace. If you're here in our guest today, you're invited too, okay? This is for, it ought to say it's for everyone, okay? So I'll reiterate that right now and rephrase that. But uh, we'd love to have you come and join us for that tonight. I think you'd find it a blessing. You'd find Timothy Paul Jones a, a blessing to hear and be a part of. So tonight at 6 o'clock. So we'll rephrase that uh, in six months when we do our third uh, biannual uh, family summit. Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you will, to John 3. John 3.16 is the central focus of our message again this Sunday, as it was last Sunday. Uh, we looked at 9 through 16 last week. We'll, re- we'll go back and look at a little bit of that and lean up to 16, but then we'll look at the verses following that also down through verse 21, uh, thinking about that central verse of John 3.16, the most widely quoted, most widely known verse probably in all the Bible, and sometimes maybe quoted so often and so widely that it becomes almost trite. You know, a lot of times when we think about the uh, missions and and by the way, if you haven't seen the coffee area out there with some of our pictures from Peru, you ought to look at that. Those are not bought pictures from a gallery. Those are, those are pictures that our people took while in Peru on our mission uh, trips down there during uh, uh, the last couple of years and we'll be going back again in about two weeks, less than two weeks, about a week and a half. But those are actual people that we minister to. And so I encourage you to look at those. They are precious and remind us of our call to the nations. But a lot of times we think about missions, uh, we immediately think about, uh, you know, the end of Matthew, what's known as the Great Commission. Jesus saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth, so go therefore into all the world, making disciples of all men, teaching them to observe what I, baptizing them and teaching them to observe whatever I've taught you. And lo, I'm with you always, even at the end of the earth. And that is a great missions and evangelism uh, passage. But what we don't realize sometimes, because we quote it so often, is really so is John 3.16. John 3.16 was earlier on in Jesus' ministry, and it was the one where he clearly and emphatically opened the door for world missions and world evangelism. It was much more so uh, early on in his ministry than just at the end. And sometimes we miss that point, but I don't want us to miss it today. I want you to hear the words of John 3.16 through 21 as we read together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Verse 15, it already said, everyone who believes or whoever believes in him will have eternal life. He reiterates it in 16. For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world or condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved, might be saved through him. I I revert to King James sometimes. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light. And does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light. So that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. This is God's word. May we hear it. Let's pray together. 
Father, use this passage to teach us of your great love and of the depth of that love and the magnitude of that love and the scope of that love, even as we come today to hear from you. Thank you, Father, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I suppose there's no more masterly or moving summary of the gospel anywhere in the New Testament than you will find in John 3.16. It it is the essence of the gospel. It is the essence of our message. It is the essence of of the truth of God having sent his son into the world. As a matter of fact, on Monday night, Dr. Jarvis Williams will be leading our our worship that night and talking about the truth of God's love. And he'll expand it throughout the whole of the New Testament and show us where it comes out clearly and perfectly in so many different ways. But here, John coming to us. Now, a lot of people debate sometimes. I know if you've got a red letter version of the Bible, John 3.16 is in red letters, supposedly spoken by Jesus. Some believe this is John's commentary on what Jesus just said to Nicodemus, that John is elaborating on what has been said, and it ought to be in black letters. I'm not going to get into that argument today. You just decide for yourself how you want to view it. It works either way. It's truth either way. It's God's Word either way. But, but the fact that John brings out is, is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The first thing I want you to see here is the unfathomable depth of God's love. It is a deep love. It is an abiding love. It is really unfathomable. It is almost unthinkable that this kind of love would exist from God toward his creation, toward those things he created that, and people he created that had rebelled against him, that had turned their back on him, that had said, we want to do it our way, not your way. We want to follow our path, not your path. But yet John says, I want you to understand that God's love is so deep and so great that God so loved the world so much that he gave up his one and only son. He gave up the only begotten son that he had. He gave up the one that came into the world as God in the flesh. He gave up the one that came in the world for a very specific purpose and a very specific reason. And it wasn't just to give us pious platitudes. It wasn't just to give us certain sweet, nice sayings, but it was came to do, it was his, he came to do the work that he accomplished at the end of his life on the cross. That's important that we understand that. Because that shows the depth of his love. God could have said in all reality and with all justice, he could have said, you had your shot, Adam rebelled against me, you inherited his nature, you've all sinned against me, every single person on the face of the earth, and so I'm done with you, I want nothing to do with you, I'll be happy with myself in the Trinity in heaven with my created angels that are there with me, and we'll fellowship throughout all of eternity. I don't need you, I don't have to have you. But it wasn't out of necessity, it was out of love that he sent Christ into the world. And and John recording this here says, for God so deeply loved the world. And the word so is a word that is a magnifying word. it's It's an amplifying word. It doesn't just say for God loved the world. For God so loved the world, so deeply loved the world, that he sent his only begotten, his one and only son, into the world, and then he gave him up. Literally, the word there means gave him up, turned him over to die on a cross that the sacrifice might be fulfilled and that that those who believe might have eternal life, that those who believe might not be judged, that those who believe might live with him for all of eternity and know him in a relationship 
even in this life right now. For God so loved the world. There's the unfathomable, unthinkable depth of God's love. I don't know about you, but I certainly don't love people that have reacted against me or hurt me that way. I might love them. I might love them because God has told me to love them. Jesus said it's easy for you to love those who love you, but it's more difficult to love your enemies. And I'm telling you, love your enemies. It, it might be that out of obedience to my Lord, I might say, I love my enemies. I love those who have hurt me. I love those who have, have damaged me in some way. But to go that far to say, okay, I love them so much, I would give up my only son? That, that depth is just not present. But that's the depth with which Jesus loved his creation, his world. It's the depth with which he loved rebellious sinners like you and me. So deep, it's unfathomable. So John wants us to see the depth of God's love there. Second thing I think he wants us to see, and it's probably the most shocking part of this whole verse, at least to Nicodemus and to the other Jews that were hearing Jesus preach in that day, and, and those who read John's letter later who were primarily Jews probably. It was the most shocking statement in all this verse. We read it with just a casualness. For God so loved the world. There we see the, the expansive scope. We have the unfathomable depth, but we also see the, the, the expansive scope of God's love. For God so loved the world. You've got to know that Nicodemus would have wanted to say, and maybe he did and John just didn't record it. Now, wait a minute, Jesus. The world, that's going a little far. I mean, Nicodemus and all the, the Jews of that day knew that God so loved Israel that there was a special love for Israel. There was a, uh, God was, had chosen them and called them, had brought them out of darkness and, and, and through Abraham, their father. They had no question, no doubt, no qualms about saying, for God so loved Israel. But when Jesus says, and John records, that for God so loved the world, he's showing that God's love is an expansive love that stretches to all four corners of the earth, as it would have been said euphemistically back then. It's, it encircles the globe. It goes from the North Pole to the South Pole. It goes from the East to the West as far as it goes, and that goes on forever. John says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. you, you got to think Nicodemus thought, I can understand God giving his son for Israel. I can understand God giving his son for the chosen people. But when you start talking about for God so loved the world that he gave his son, this was a shocking statement. This was a statement that, that caught them off guard. It, you almost got to imagine there was somewhat a, a collective gasp in that group of people that was hearing this. That's the, tr that's the truth of God's word. But you know what the thing is? It's always been the scope of God's love. It never has been just limited to Israel. Israel took it that way, and they sort of kept it in, and they thought, this is for us and for us to enjoy, and we can know God, and we can know the blessings of God, and we can know the purpose of God, but, but those Samaritans and those Gentiles, and those are, those are dirty people that we won't absolutely know part of. They're not a part of us. They're not a part of our, our nation. They're not a part of our religion. Surely God doesn't love them. Surely God wants them struck dead. Even James and John had a little trouble with that. Remember when they were walking through Samaria and 
James and John, who came to be known as the sons of thunder, said, Lord, all you got to speak, and, and those people over there will be destroyed. They'll be done away with, and we won't have to worry about them. And Jesus said, wait a minute, you're missing the whole point of my coming. You're missing the whole point of why I'm here. It's not to destroy. It's not to break down. It's not to condemn, but it's to save. It's to draw men and women. Just like John said, or Jesus said back in, in the earlier verses, just as, as, the, as, as, the Mo, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, in verse 14, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. Just as Moses lifted up, up the serpent and they looked at it in faith and they were healed of the sickness of being bitten by the snakes, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. And all who look on Him with faith will have eternal life. Now, I want to clarify something I said last week because some people maybe didn't understand exactly what I'm saying. I, I said those who lift, looked to the serpent and were healed later died because that was not an efficacious, that was not an eternal saving. That was a temporal saving. But the thing that Jesus is saying here, that those who believe in him will have eternal life, and I said those who believe in the Son will never die. Of course, he's talking about spiritual death. He's talking about eternal death there. He's not talking about dying physically. He's talking about those who come to him will never experience the pain of death because they will enter into the presence of the Father. I received sad news at about 3.15 yesterday afternoon that one of my living heroes of the faith, and I'm so glad he finished well, went to be with the Lord. But Chuck Colson who had been a felon in the Watergate scandal and went to prison, came to know the Lord and came out of there and proved that he really came to know the Lord because of the life he lived after that. But Colson, who two weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago, had a brain aneurysm, had surgery, thought he was getting better, but then just took a real turn for the worse on Thursday and died, went to be with the Lord yesterday afternoon. And it's a joy to know that even though his body ceased to function, Chuck Colson did not die because he had put his faith in Jesus Christ. He had looked to the Son of Man who had been lifted up on the cross, and he lives forevermore in the presence of God because of that faith. And, and Jesus says here, as the Son of Man is lifted up, those who look upon him and believe in him and trust in him will have eternal life. But here it's being expanded. It's worldwide. It's not just for Israel. It's not just for a small, little, tiny country in the Middle East. This love, Jesus says, and John records, is for the whole world. It's for every man, woman, boy, and girl that puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. This love is an expansive thing. It's not just for a certain people. That's exactly what Scott read in the Scripture passage this morning from Revelation chapter 5. One of the things that John saw when he saw that vision of heaven and he saw the myriads and myriads of angels and, and people surrounding the throne of God and all the created beings. And in verses 9 and 10 it says, And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. I mean, that's the expansive nature of the cross. That's the expansive nature of God's love. That's the expansive nature, the expansive scope of, of the gospel, my friends. For you have purchased from every tribe. Listen, there is the, there's the missionary imperative. For God so loved the world 
and he has purchased out of every tribe and every tongue and every nation a people. It doesn't say say that by his death he purchased every single individual, but out of every tribe, out of every tongue, out of every people, and out of every nation. That's why we go to Peru. That's why we go to the Chancay River Valley five, six times a year. We go there because God has purchased people from those, those, uh, those, those Ambo Pasco Quechua people who had never fully heard, never really heard the gospel until about three or four years ago, probably. They had heard some, some confusion about the gospel, but never really heard the gospel. But God is saving people out of that people, out of those, that tongue, out of that tribe, out of that, that area. He's saving people unto himself. And God, by his grace, is letting us be a part of it. Isn't that a tremendous blessing? And every time we go back, and we see people come to Christ, and we see people growing in Christ, and we see people hungry for the Word, it just fuels the desire to go again and to be a part of what God is doing in that place. But that's the expansive scope of the gospel. It's unfathomably deep. It is expansively wide as it covers the whole world. And verse 10 says, you've made them, that is those who you've chosen, you've made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth with him one day. You know, the, the, the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of John 3.16, is that God is at work. And the truth that this shows is, and, and I don't want you to miss this, the truth that this whole passage shows is what might be said to be that, that becoming a Christian is always a miracle. It's not a human endeavor. It's not something that we conjure up and we become a Christian because, okay, today I decide I want to be a Christian. Maybe tomorrow I'll decide I won't, but today I want to be. It's not that at all. The, becoming a Christian and the rebirth, the spiritual birth that Jesus has talked to Nicodemus about is a miracle. It's a birth from on high. It's to be born again. It's to be given new life from God, by God, and by His power. Everybody becoming a Christian, every person that trusts Christ is a miracle of new birth. I, I, I always love going to the hospital when babies have been born. You know, that's just that's my fun time because there in that little person is a miracle. It's a, it's a glorious miracle. You know, it's not a miracle. It's, a, it's biological. We know how that works. We've studied biology and all those sort of things in school. We know, we know what happens. It makes that baby. Oh, let me tell you something. That's just the mechanics God chose to have the baby made. The miracle is that he has woven that baby in its mother's womb. He has carefully fabricated and, and crafted that baby in its mother's womb. And when that baby comes out, it's a miracle, a miracle of God. Matter of fact, several years ago, yeah, and, and Brian gets to see it all the time, <laughs> every day. I remember years ago, between uh, Anna and Will, uh, we lost a baby. We had a miscarriage. We, we're, we've got a baby waiting to meet yet in heaven, I think. And so we had that. And I remember sitting down and talking to the, to the gynecologist, the OBGYN, that, that was our doctor at that time, and, and, and asking him, so why, why did this happen? You know, I don't understand. We've done everything right. She's taking vitamins. She's doing everything like she's supposed to do. And, and the... the uh, 
we've done everything we did with the first two. They're, they're, what, what's wrong? Why did we lose this baby? And he said something to me that was the most remarkable thing I think I ever heard. He said, listen, the unusual thing is not the, that you lose a baby. The unusual thing is that a baby is even born. So much has to happen. So much has to be, be right in there. So much has to be cared for in that womb that, that the real miracle is that the baby is born. And so when we rejoice in that, we say there is birth, there is a miracle. But let me tell you something, that's merely a picture of, that's merely an illustration of the miracle that takes place when a man or a woman or a young person comes to faith in Christ. There's a rebirth that can only be wrought and only be done by the work of God. John's already dealt with that back in the first chapter in his prologue. John made clear in verses uh, verse 12 and 13 where he said, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were not born, uh, who, excuse me, who were born not, by, not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. It's a supernatural work. Being born from above, being born from on high, being born anew, not entering physically into your mother's womb again, as Nicodemus was so confused by, but being born by the Spirit, being born by the work of God's Holy Spirit in our lives. Well, John goes on after John 3.16, and, and I'm just going to summarize this because we're going to look at it again in two weeks uh, a little more in depth. But I want you to see sort of a summary of these verses because John makes really six important statements here from 16 through 21. And, and I'm just going to run through them, and then we'll be done. First thing I want you to see is that John makes clear here that before coming to Christ, all people are in darkness. And they love the darkness. They, they like it. They enjoy the darkness. because it, it conceals their sin. It conceals who they really are. This is whether they've heard the gospel or not. They are in darkness. They are lost not because they've never heard the gospel. They are lost because they're sinners living in darkness. That's a fact we must always remember. And again, the missionary imperative comes out of that. We must go to them because they are lost. They are in sin. They are in darkness. And we must take them the light of Christ. So all men, before coming to Christ, are living in darkness. Secondly, Christians are those who've literally seen the light. Not because of their intelligence, not because of their goodness, not because they're smarter. It's because God has opened their eyes and opened their hearts as, as he did with Lydia in the book of Acts. He's opened the blind eyes. He's softened hard hearts that, that we might see the light. And in seeing the light, we see our need for a Savior. We see our sin first, that our sin is great. I mean, the light exposes that sin. When God's light shines upon your heart, you go, whoa, I didn't realize that's how I was. I didn't want to admit that's how I was. But His light exposes it and shows us our, our sin, shows us the darkness we've lived in, and then shows us our need for the only Savior, the one who was lifted up on a cross, that all who look unto Him and believe in Him and trust in Him may have eternal life. Christians are those who've seen the light. John says in his first epistle, in 1 John 1, 7 and 8, but if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 
In other words, as, as we come to Christ by a supernatural work of God and we are reborn by his Holy Spirit and reborn by his work within, then we walk in the light. We have a, 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 a path that is lit by the, by the grace of God and by the truth of God that we walk in. And when we walk in the light, it not only gives us fellowship with God and relationship with God, it does do that, but it also gives us fellowship with one another. That's why Paul said to the Corinthian Christians in 2 Corinthians 6, he said, listen, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Or what does light have in common with darkness? Don't, don't be hooked up with unbelievers, whether in, in business relationships or in marriage or, or any other close, intimate relationship. Because what does, what does false idolatry have to do with the Son of God? What does light have to do with darkness? And the, implication, uh, the implied answer is there's nothing in common. But when we walk in the light, when we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from our sin. Again, I love that verse in, and can it be, oh, it's not and can it be, in, uh, it is well, I like and can it be too, but uh, in, it is well, you know, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. It is well, it is well with my soul. Jesus didn't just take some of your sin and bury it on the cross. If you're in Christ, if you're walking in the light, if you are in Christ, your sin, not in part, but the whole of it, every bit of it, past, present, future, is nailed to the cross, and you don't bear the punishment of that sin. Jesus bore it for you. But as we walk through this life and have fellowship with one another and fellowship with the Father, His blood cleanses us. From all sin, sin that we'll commit tomorrow, that's already been born on the cross but still affects our life tomorrow and will affect our fellowship if it's not cleansed. But as we walk in the light, it cleanses us. Third thing, this coming to the light leads in broader terms to believing in the Son and in His sacrifice for our sins. That's verses 14 and 15. When, when Jesus just simply said, as Moses lifted up the servant, Serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. There's the qualifier, always. The one who believes. It's not for everybody. It's not, okay, everybody's covered by the death of Christ. All your sins, whether you've trusted Christ or not, is covered. No, the qualifier is whoever believes, those who believe. I would say to you this morning, if you never trusted Christ, I mean really trusted Christ alone, I invite you to Christ today because that's the only source of forgiveness. It's the only place of healing spiritually to come to the light, believe in the Son, and believe in His sacrifice. Fourth, after coming to the light, believers have a new life and a new moral power. Therefore, we realize that to live in the light is to live by grace alone. We are saved by grace alone. We walk by grace alone. It's a new moral power where we trust Him to energize us. We trust Him to equip us. We trust Him to give us the strength to walk in the light every day. We don't do it ourselves and say, oh, there's the light. i got to keep in it here, you know. It's the Spirit of God directing us in life. 
and to trust in Him and be born again, as Jesus is talking about here, gives us new life. In contrast to that, fifthly, by refusing the light of Christ, unbelievers face a deepening of the condemnation that is already hanging over them because of their sinful lives. See, it's, it's not refusing the life that, that brings them condemnation. They're already under condemnation. He says here, if you don't believe in the Son, you've already been judged. You're already under condemnation. That's, that's the clear implication here. The condemnation is there because every single human being that ever lived by virtue of being born is a sinner, uh, inheriting that from Father Adam. But those who refuse the light just bring a deepening of the condemnation that's already there. The sixth thing that Jesus says and John emphasizes here in this passage is that by refusing the light of Christ, this condemnation of unbelievers does not bring God pleasure. You know, you sometimes maybe get the idea that God says, yippee, I can cast somebody out into eternal death, out into eternal hell. There's no pleasure in that for God. I mean, God said that through Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 11 and 12, he said, So say to them, Ezekiel, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn your back on your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? Why then will you choose death over life? I mean, the cry is and the call is, from God, I don't find pleasure in condemning anyone. I find pleasure. I find pleasure in those who come to my son, who come by faith, who come in trust. I mean, the, the gospel, for God so loved the world, the unfathomable depth, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him, shall not perish. Perish meaning not physical death, but hell. Perish in eternal punishment. Shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's the scope. It's worldwide. It's for every tribe, nation, tongue, and people. So we go if we've been given the light. We go if we've been given new life in Christ. We go because we know that those people without the gospel are under condemnation. There, there's no excuse, Paul says in Romans 1. They're all without excuse. They've, they've seen God's creation, but yet they chose to worship idols and be disobedient. We go because of who he is. But we're here because of that love. We're here because of that grace. We're here because of that light. And our prayer is, my prayer is that from this place, even as after dark tonight, the cross will glow out from that tower behind me, that from this place, our lives will glow with the gospel of Jesus Christ into Somerset and Pulaski County and Kentucky and the United States and the world beyond, that we will be a source of light to the nations. Locally, yes, but also to the nations. May God grant that by His grace.
for his glory. Let's pray. Again, John speaks with clarity. Jesus speaks with clarity about the gospel. And you may be here this morning and you've never placed your trust in Christ and and publicly confessed him through baptism. And it may be this morning that the Holy Spirit is working in your heart, in your life, and you don't even know what it is. You you know there's something stirring, but you're not clear. That's why we're here, to help you discern what God is saying and doing in your life. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, I invite you to Christ today. Not to Grace Baptist, not to a preacher, not to a, a religion or a denomination. I invite you to Jesus Christ, the Lord. I invite you to come to him. You can do that right where you're sitting now. You can say, Lord, I sense your story, and I, I don't understand it, but I cry out to you, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, show me your grace and save me from my sin. It's that simple. Just to cry out to him on the basis of his calling you to faith in Christ. Then you need to make that public. He says, confess me before men. And baptism is an act of obedience and an act of confession of faith. And you need to to follow through with that. Maybe you're here this morning and and you've just been confused about what it means to walk in the light. Well, it means to walk in Christ. Trusting Him. Abiding in Him. Looking to Him for Every step. What is it God's calling you to today? You be obedient as we sing together in a moment. And come as God leads you. Come in that obedience. Father, speak to us by your Holy Spirit and through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.